welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom and the hashtag, the virtual shift. This is uh, part two of a discussion we're having with uh, Dr. David Nash. He's the founding Dean Emeritus, as well as the Grandin uh, Professional of Health Policy at the Jefferson College of Population Health. Dr. Nash, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. I'm uh, really appreciative of your interest in our work. Awesome. Dr. Nash, uh, as we talked about in part one, uh, that was uh, played last week uh, on this uh, program. We talked about a book that was uh, re- just recently released, How COVID Crashed the System. Uh, so let's give it a short synopsis of, of the book for those that didn't listen to part one, and then we'll talk about part two of the book, actually. Great. Thanks. So the full title of the book, which is telling, is How COVID Crashed the System, colon, A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. So our analogy, if you would, is that the healthcare system, America's biggest business, 20% of the GDP, is a gigantic airplane crash. And Charles Wolforth, my co-author and I, are the National Transportation Safety Board investigators plying around the burning wreckage at Philadelphia International trying to figure out what the heck happened. And the answer is very straightforward. We don't even need the black box to say why did this system, this airplane crash, as we discussed a lot in part one. And the second half of the book is the second half of the title, uh, How to a Guide to Fixing American Healthcare, where we tackle the issues of reimbursement, uh, physician training, uh, the public health infrastructure, the need for sustained leadership on these issues, and many other pragmatic recommendations to fix what's broken in our non-system of care. A system, just to review, that spends 20% of the GDP, and for that investment, average life expectancy in this great nation has gone down pre-COVID, and now was in continued reverse gear. Why would anybody tolerate 20% of the GDP not giving us a good return on our investment, especially given where the stock market is today? Yeah, very true. Uh, And I just want to call out, you know, there's another book called The Calling by Dr. Chris Chen uh, from Chen Med, and he calls out in his book, and it was really part and parcel of the disparity of health. In yes. New Orleans, within one community, the average life expectancy is 57. Absolutely. Right? So, and then in a in a community just next to it yes. is is like 20, 30 years older, right? And that has to do with a lot of the public policies well, and let's, access let's to care and that. access to cure. Let's talk about that time, Tom. I, I know Chris Chen. I've met him uh, several times. Quite an incredible family that created Chen Med. Uh, But let's just talk about Philadelphia. So if you are lucky enough to be born in Society Hill, Philadelphia, two blocks from my office in Center City, your average life expectancy is 88 years. If you get in a taxi and drive four and a half miles north on Broad Street, across the street from Temple University Hospital, 
one of our peer institutions in our great city, your average life expectancy is 68 years. So we have a 20 year life expectancy disparity in the founding city of our great country. You know, my office is walking distance from Independence Place and the Liberty Bell, where it all started. And for us to tolerate this, I think is next to sinful, quite frankly, in a city where healthcare is our biggest business and our largest employer. Yeah, for sure. Philadelphia has several great health institutions. Indeed. The question is, is are the people using the health systems local or are they coming from out of state because they have that they have that name, right? Well, the vast majority so, but, Yes, the vast majority are from 50 contiguous zip codes and that's true for Temple, Penn, Jefferson, Cooper, uh, Drexel and so on. But Philadelphia produces one out of four doctors in America. We have the two largest private medical schools in our great city. That's Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Jefferson and the Drexel University College of Medicine. You put those two schools together. We have uh, more medical students in our city than almost any other city in the country, including that silly city on the banks of the Charles River where everybody thinks healthcare starts from. So Philadelphia is it. And we train more doctors than almost anywhere else. Jefferson Health System itself has one of the largest internship, residency, and fellowship programs in the country. So Philadelphia is a great example of what's broken in terms of one out of four citizens living in poverty. And of those 25%, half of them live in what Uncle Sam euphemistically calls deep poverty which means, Tom, they can't put food on the table. Well, if you can't put food on the table and you got to rely on the public schools to feed your children, health care is not your top priority. And therefore, it's no surprise that those folks suffered disproportionately back in 2020, 2021. But we're looking forward to the future in part two of the book. And among the many things that we chatted about in part one is, you know, how do, where do we begin to tackle these issues? And the summary is that COVID shined a bright light on all these problems. And now the question is, will our industry, will our current industry leaders grab this opportunity, the so-called burning platform? This platform is not just burning, it's engulfed in an inferno. And will we take the heat and generate light. I am not confident at the moment that we're going to do that. So let's talk about that because the solution is what we need. And uh, you're, uh, you've examined the past as, as many others, but you have some good suggestions on what to do about the future. And you have, and your suggestions vary in the context of what we can do now and what we can do to reseed the farm and right. grow a different uh, type of delivery of care, right? And that starts at the educational level yes. in those schools that, that resonate one out. I didn't know that one out of four doctors resonate out of Philadelphia. I did not know that. That's a interesting fact. As, as, uh, as the America was born, so can healthcare be born, you uh, reborn out of Philadelphia. So tell us a little bit about what we could do now and what your thoughts are, what we could do now and what, what we could do more long that, have more long-term impact. Sure, great. 
I think some of the short-term issues are to continue to tackle the perverse economic incentives that private practice of medicine delivers, which is you get rewarded the more you do, the more you get paid. Let's continue to change the incentives to if you improve health, you will be rewarded. We came up over a decade ago with no outcome, no income. One more time, no outcome, no income, meaning you're going to get paid more if you achieve a better health outcome. So let's refocus on reducing coronary disease, reducing obesity, reducing the burden of diabetes. Let's get people moving. Let's get them access to healthy food. And let's, most importantly, reward the leadership of the delivery system for thinking and acting in this way. There are great examples. There are leaders like Mike Dowling at Northwell, a national spokesperson against gun violence, like Omar Latif at Rush in Chicago, who deliberately em employs people directly from the community, builds in the community, co consults with the community, based on the work of David Ansel and his great book, The Death Gap in Chicago. In other words, we know that the social determinants drive most health outcomes. Jefferson and all of our peer organizations who are great and temples of technology, the envy of the world for our technology, but that's 15% of the dilemma. 85% of the dilemma are all these tougher social issues that I believe if we reward our healthcare leaders to tackle these issues, they will tackle them. So uh, no outcome, no uh, no outcome, no income. And, right. Uh, I I would ask, and I think you do talk about this in the book. You know, what's the problem today with value based care? Because we've been talking about value based care for yeah. a long time, but we yes. don't have a lot of people at risk. Meaning, uh, first off, I don't even know what patient even knows about value based care. Yes. Right? Because a, a good part of outcomes is about. What 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 uh, uh, grocery store I'm going to go to, right? right. And, and and how I walk and exercise, diet, and all, all that good stuff, right? So you know, uh, so let me go uh, one one more thought. I've always said on this program that the average Medicare patient with five chronic conditions, right, by CMS data, sees their have nine different doctors, right. and they're only in front of their doctor fifteen hours in a given year. Absolutely the right. The problem is not that. That's where the checkup occurs. The problem is what happens the eight other 8,745 hours. Yes. That's where we have to fix healthcare, right? Yes. It's not when you're in front of the doctor. It's when you're not in front of the doctor. And that and that still requires the, the health system involvement. I'm not uh, giving them a, a break here, but it's really this collaboration between the patient and the provider on a continuous care basis. Uh, and so I, I, I'm just very curious as to no outcomes, no incomes, and value-based care, and what's not working in that model, Great. given it's well, a long-term implementation. Tra Charles and I should write another book, Tom, just about value-based care and what does it even mean. But my point today is that we've been talking about no outcome, no income for more than a decade. You're right. Value-based care has not received the kind of attention traction and progress that it should. There are a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the payers and providers are still locked in desperate struggle in so many markets. 
we describe in the book as one potential solution to this challenge that you point out, the notion of the payvider, a clunky term, but a term that describes the fact when payers and providers come together, magic occurs. We align the economic incentives. We learn from one another. We begin to say, hey, let's refocus on prescriptions for healthy food. Let's have a farm like Mainline Health in Philadelphia, a wonderful four hospital local and regional system where I at one time was a board member. Let's reward physicians who are on salary in these organizations to improve health outcomes. Let's reward the system for reducing medical error. We haven't chatted about the fact that 400,000 people die needlessly every year from errors that we commit within the broken system. You know, it's sad at this point that COVID is the third leading cause of death in America, heart disease, cancer, and COVID. My God, when you think of it that way, we ought to have a national strategy, a public health and population health strategy focused on COVID like we do with President Biden and the moonshot for cancer care and the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology and all the work that's gone on and knowing your cholesterol number. We are calling for a similar effort now that COVID is the third leading cause of death in America. It's insanity that 300 people per day are still dying from COVID. So look, the issue here is it's going to take leadership realignment of economic incentives. That's what we have to do first. Yeah, I, I agree. I look at it. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Woodson, again, another guest. Uh, he was my very first guest. Uh, he was on the uh, Biden transition team. And uh, he he spoke about the need for a national strategy. And now you might think, hey, we do have a national strategy. We had the High Tech Act. We got the Obamacare, you know, things of that nature. But I don't think that's what he was. I, I know that's not what he was talking about. The point there is that we are 12 years into the High Tech Act as one example. Yes. Uh, and we would not have done as well in COVID response if we didn't have the High Tech Act many moons ago. Right? That's probably so, true. So the point there being is I always when I go back to part one of this discussion, we talked about infrastructure investment, you know, healthcare infrastructure is necessary and our major investor is called the federal government right and the and but we need to have we can't have with all due respect uh, uh we can't have a dr fauci up there leading the charge because there's too much political stir right uh, but we need someone of credibility and that is that doesn't put politics first that's ultimately going to be your leader in this is where we all have to go not you know, you have some great health systems in Philadelphia, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Jefferson Temple and many, many, many others. It, it, we can't have five different health systems in one town doing five different things. In well, the I would agree with that. How do you approach? So, I would agree so, with that. But all, all all change is local as it relates to healthcare. So let's take Philadelphia yeah. since you brought it up. So my good friend Martin Lupinetti, the CEO of our Health Information Exchange a not-for-profit organization whereby the five major academic centers try to share clinical data. They tried very, very hard to participate in the fix for COVID. 
and there was very poor response, very poor coordination, lack of public health infrastructure, not everybody on the same page. This is true in most major cities. So yes, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, ANCHIT and all the others and all the work, but Tom, your listeners know Collectively, we gave $19 billion of our taxes to the health information industry. And what do we have to show for it today? That is a separate conversation and a separate book. I won't go there. But you and I know exactly who we're talking about and who is a billionaire as a result of that public investment. The research evidence linking that public investment to an improvement in outcomes is flimsy at best. Yes, I'm uh, putting my blood pressure cuff on because I sense uh, some reactions. So, yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so tell us again a little bit more about. All right, we're uh, what is it? Uh, September nineteenth, twenty twenty two. What should we look to do? You know, there's a lot of things that uh, COVID drove, right? COVID drove this hype for telehealth, right? Yes. And then and then Great. telehealth and then from telehealth, we got into the, the, the new hype, if you will, or the enhanced hype is remote patient monitoring and chronic care management. Talk to us about how those programs can, so, can change healthcare. So, look, there are many experts in this arena. Uh, uh, Judd Hollander, one of the national leaders, lucky enough to have him at Jefferson in his prescient New England Journal of Medicine article at the height of the pandemic. Telehealth, which I prefer digital health, is a remarkable technologic advance that we need to continue to harness. What do we need to do? Well, first, we've got to make sure that people in the community have access to digital health, just like you and I do. It's great to have digital health in Philadelphia, but if a quarter of the population can't log on, don't have easy access to the internet, have poor cellular reception, Well, that is a structural racism-related problem. We have to label it as it is. So the organizations and the city need to work together. First, poor people can connect to digital health, step one. Step two, what are the quality measures that determine are we doing a good job when you get that doctor or nurse on a telehealth visit? Jefferson's a leader in creating these quality measures. The American Telehealth Association creating quality measures. Our journal, Population Health Management, articulating the issues and making sure everybody is contributing to how do we know we're doing a good job? Then there's the educational opportunity, teaching new doctors, nurses, and pharmacists how to do telehealth. I'm way too old for all of this, but my daughter isn't. And my wife and I are so proud that the next generation of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, this, we hope, will be a standard part of their curriculum. So I think digital health is a great opportunity for the future. You know, our old boss and my great friend and our former leader, Dr. Steve Plasco, used to talk about, well, we don't say today I'm going to go do digital banking. You know, you're going to stick your card in and get your cash. You don't say, I'm going to go do digital banking today. That's where we need to go with healthcare. Is it possible? I think so. And leading organizations like Jefferson and many, many others 
need to write the book on how exactly to do this, keeping in mind those social drivers. We've also learned from digital health, which is fascinating to me, that the practitioners have an insight into where people live. What's it like in the background? Is their refrigerator working? Can they get to the office if they need to? Do they have enough money to get the prescription we just wrote? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that we can begin to use. As far as chronic disease management using digital health, well, that's a fantastic area for the future. I'm very busy working with a group of leading companies to try to improve exactly that arena, chronic disease management via digital health, an incredibly important field for the future. Not everybody in heart failure and diabetes and chronic lung disease needs to drive 25 miles and park for $30 downtown to see their doctor at Jefferson. We could do a lot of that so-called remotely. Now, when CMS decided to pay for it, all of a sudden, everybody was on the bandwagon. As soon as they reduced the payment for it, everybody is off the covered wagon heading to California. So there's a happy medium here, improving reimbursement to induce the further spread of digital technology for healthcare. That's a great pragmatic strategy for the future. You know, I look at um, remote patient monitoring, remote therapeutic monitoring, a new class of reimbursements this year, as you know. Indeed. Uh, Chronic care management, all in that digital health uh, category, you know, we and when we we talked earlier about value-based care, I, I'm a and I I I agree with the no outcomes, no income uh, model, and I agree I believe in in value-based care, but providers can ultimately provide the same continuous care model, leveraging these new digital health platforms and not even take on risk. That's correct. Risk, right? right. So. So there's a lot of opportunity here. And to me, I think this is the starting point from if you can take if you can implement these programs without taking on risk, you under you start to understand your model. You understand your community better. And then once you understand your community better, you can engage them differently. And then you can start to go down this road of risk. Right. Because no, totally. right now doctors are saying, I don't know what I don't know. And therefore, I ain't right. doing it. Right. Well, so that was the thesis for our college in no small part was to train the leaders of the future to lead this charge to value-based care. And I'm incredibly proud of what we've accomplished in the past. And I have faith in Dean Oglesby and his team to continue to upgrade our curriculum and help create the leader of the future. Because as our listeners know, One of the most important responsibilities of leaders today, of course, as uh, uh, Dr. Cotter from Harvard Business School would argue, it's all about our responsibility to train the leaders of tomorrow. That has been the focus of my work for the last 32 years at Jefferson. So uh, the closing question would be, I'm with you 100 percent. I'm your new cheerleader, frankly. Uh, based on this discussion and your book. So, you know, but we often, soon as we, soon as our listeners stop listening to our earlier, they, they start to forget what was said. We, how do we create this, this ongoing dialogue and how do we coordinate 
5,000 different health systems across this country and, and the, and the, and the, uh, dis, discoordinated, uh, or separated, maybe as, uh, uh, ambulatory clinics that are in this community, around right. this community called the United States of America. Uh, how do we, how do we get them on all on the same page? Because that seems to me like the, the biggest problem. And does a single payer system uh, help get us there? I, well, I certainly a single way, payer system does not, in my view, that is not the answer, not in our heterogeneous, gigantic, 370 million person great country. That's not the answer. All health care is local. All right. change is local. So think globally, act locally. That's what it's all about. Get the changes in your own region. Understand the connection to the social determinants, petition the schools, the delivery systems, the boards of directors of these organizations who are largely publicly unaccountable. We're spending public money. We ought to demand, demand a better public outcome. That is where it all starts at the local level. Oh, and expand Obamacare and achieve the dream of universal access and universal coverage. Without that, we'll never be able to fix what's broken. Doctor, an awesome, awesome conversation. Thank I really you. do Great appreciate to uh, your time. And um, I, I appreciate you taking the time to write this book along with your, your colleagues. And uh, so uh, we'll remind our guests as well on, on part two of this program, where can they go and find this book? Great. So again, how COVID crashed the system. A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. It's available on Amazon. Get your order in now because the first printing is almost sold out. And also directly from the publisher at Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N.com. And again, every nickel goes to support the work of the Jefferson College of Population Health in Philadelphia. Uh, that is, uh, when you said that in, uh, at the end of part one, I, I was amazed. I really do uh, that, that just puts the whole book and, and your whole focus and your efforts in a different category. Thank you. Of you're just ta- you're you're taking that investment of your own personal time and the and the outcomes of that investment and putting it right back into the system and and in the hopes I'm sure uh, in your in your view uh, to create more positive change. So um, amen to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. So if there's anything I could ever do for you. Uh, let me know. Uh, but again, uh, Dr. Nash, I thank you for your time your and your efforts and your, and your insights. I appreciate thank you it. very much, Tom. I really appreciate it. I want to thank the show's sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.